My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome to another episode of Unlock Your Potential. Jeff Lerner, your host, always so excited to be back with you, having amazing conversations with amazing human beings to help you unlock your full potential in every area of your life. And today we are swimming in uncharted waters for this podcast, helping you unlock your potential in perhaps one of the more interesting parts of your life, or maybe it's one of the less interesting parts of your life, and we'd like to help you change that. We are joined today by Dorian Solot and Marshall Miller. They are the authors and co-founders of Sex Discussed Here, which is a way of saying sex will be discussed here today on this podcast. They are nationally known sex educators who specialize in teaching about female orgasm. Uh, I have a whole comprehensive bio to read on both of these fine folks, but I'm going to give you the concise version. Basically, uh, they I, I, I actually prefer having done my own research. So Dorian and Marshall, they speak on college campuses. They do workshops on college campuses where I'm sure they find a, a very receptive and interested audience uh, in their subject matter. Marshall has a degree in sexuality and society. He's run HIV and STI prevention programs. Dorian, uh, literally her Comfort with her own body saved her life as a breast cancer survivor and is passionate about increasing people's knowledge and comfort with their own bodies. She's a trained sexuality educator. They are the authors, and I can't wait to hear more about this, of the I Love of I Love Female Orgasm, an extraordinary orgasm guide. They've appeared all over the media, conservative shows, liberal shows, left shows, right shows, tall shows, short shows, white shows, brown shows. They're all over the place, and we're glad that they're now here on Unlock Your Potential. Dorian and Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We are so excited to be with you today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us on. I am so glad you guys are here. And I, and I actually left out probably one of the key biographical elements, which is that you guys live together. You have children together. Um, and assuming that didn't happen in some sort of bizarre chemistry experiment, some of your subject matter expertise probably involves one another. Hope that's not too personal to say. <laughs> but uh, anyway, really interesting. So before we actually get into like, the topic at hand, I'd really, if you don't mind, I'd like to back up a little bit. How the heck did you two get into this? Like how, I, I don't know, this isn't something you you go to school and, and well, I guess you can major in it, but like there's no career track for it that I've seen. So like, how'd you guys get here? And then we'll get into it. It's so true. And I'm glad you said that we're a couple because we, we sometimes forget to tell audiences that. And then we've learned, they spend the entire time, we'll give an hour and a half presentation. They'll be like, how well do they know each other? So yes, it's good to know that we have um, personal and professional experience with the topics that we teach about. Do you want to sort of answer how we got started, Marshall? Yeah, sure. And actually, my story of how I got interested in this was with the major sexuality and society. So I was an English major. I was undecided entering into college. And then I was like, you know, English just seemed logical. There were classes that were really interesting to me. But there's only so much that could be said about English. And, you know, everything that needs to be said about Chaucer or Shakespeare, in my opinion, has already been said. But then about halfway through my sophomore year, they announced this new major, Sexuality and Society. And I was like, that is something I would like to sign up for. So that led to uh, a senior seminar. We would read drafts of professors' books that were coming out. And I wrote a thesis on HIV prevention, which led to a job right after college, uh, training uh, peer educators, over 100 of them at the, at the sort of peak of the program, um, to go out into bars and clubs and talk to people about safer sex and HIV and STI prevention. 
And it was interesting. So much of that work is very similar to what we do now in terms of just helping people be more comfortable talking about sex. Like in that case, it was with uh, as an, in, in an educator role, but that's also true for people just feeling more comfortable talking to their partners about sex or potential partners. But it, but Marshall and I went to the same college at the same time that he was majoring, pursuing this major. I had heard that there was this volunteer group. Um, they had realized that this was a student group where they had discovered that there was no sex education happening in Providence Public Schools. This is Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and these students got permission that they trained college students as sex educators, that they would go into the into the public schools and do some of that basic age appropriate education. Maybe it'd be about puberty. Maybe it'd be for for um, high school students. So I, I thought that would be a cool volunteer project. So I signed up for this and sort of started this really pretty intensive training process to prepare to go and be a volunteer in the public schools at the same around the same time Marshall and I started dating. So we were both thinking and talking a lot about sexuality during this period of time. Um, and soon after college, we uh, started offering workshops. We'd go to a conference, we'd offer a workshop on some like 60-minute workshop that we knew something about. And we thought, well, I could talk about this for, for an hour. And we started having college students come to us and saying like, I want you to speak at my school. How much do you charge? And we we're like, how much do we charge? Like no one has ever paid us anything. So we started sort of making up numbers. Um, but that that sort of path toward entrepreneurship about, I almost feel like we were called, we were tapped, uh, where people started saying like, we want to hire you to do this. And we had to do a little bit of playing catch up to figure out, well, how do you get paid as a speaker and how do you set your prices and how do you make a living, which is what we do now, full time as professional speakers and writers. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's yeah, it's it's interesting how often that seems to be a common theme with mm -hmm. with my guests where it's not, you know, what is it? Uh, Victor Frankl said, you know, um, success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue something like that, just simply by, by following uh, a passion. And that really, that really, I mean, it's a cliche, I suppose, but it's, it's probably a cliche for a reason. So, so now you guys like describe what you do. Somebody, this is probably very interesting at dinner parties. Oh, what do you guys do for a living? Like describe <laughs> a day or a week or a month in, in your professional life. Yeah. Well, it's like what, one of those memes of like what my friends think I do, what the public thinks I right, do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what people imagine we do or literally put this way i think the most the most enjoyable part of our jobs is is literally standing on stage as you said most often at colleges they're probably 90 percent of the the work that we do um giving a presentation we're we're very similar to a traveling like band or a comedian where we're coming in for one night providing education and entertainment at the same time um usually for an hour an hour and a half on stage after that answering students questions and then then heading back to the hotel and on to the next college, wherever that may be the next day. And then a given week during the academic semester, we might speak at anywhere between two and four colleges a week. And so we're just on from one to the next to the next. And we've now hired and trained other sex educators who co-present with us. So it's not always uh, just the two of us all the time. So I'm curious. I mean, I, I have, I guess... I'll, many questions about the the life of a, of a sexuality entrepreneur, like almost more of like the business side of it. But, yeah. you know, I, that's maybe we'll get there. Maybe we won't. I want to I want to kind of have a blend of like the entrepreneurship conversation, but also like the subject matter conversation. What this show is really, really trying to 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 go after, like I alluded to in the intro is is really helping people unlock their full potential in every area of life. Um we believe that how you do one thing is how you do everything. There's no such thing as compartmentalized success. And 
frankly, if you have an issue in one area, it's probably, you know, appearing like a whack-a-mole game in many other areas of your life too, whether you're conscious of it or not. So, uh, you know, it's funny, sexuality, like it's not, this is going to sound really weird. It's not a very interesting topic to me because it's actually like really straightforward. Like to me, I mean, in my ignorant, I'm clearly I'm the ignorant anomaly because most of culture is obsessed with talking about it. But I'm like, just find someone who you're really compatible with, fall deeply in love with them and like explore and have fun and, and, and build trust. And like, what, like, how did it get so much more complicated than that? Maybe you guys are at the front lines. Like, what's all this dysfunction out there that it requires so much discussion and cleanup? Mm, I think what you just said is, I mean, that's like 90% of maybe 95% of what you need to get there. You know, I've had some communication built in, which is sort of part of the building trust and all of that, being in love, hopefully. Um, yeah, where, where did everything else? I think there's so much um, shame and misinformation and lies. And then it becomes really political. Like, are, are we allowed to tell young people this? What are the messages that young people are being told um, that really does get in the way of, as you said, what on some level is really can be quite simple? I also think for this this internet, can, you know, for a generation that has phones in their hands that sort of shape their perception of the world from a very young age, I think access to porn and dating apps and just sort of uh, what we call like sort of Instagram-like culture can really clutter your head in a way that can make it a lot harder to do exactly what you outlined is very simple but much harder to do when you've been on your phone for 10 years prior to meeting that person you're going to fall in love with and i think it can really get people off track and and make it a lot more difficult and that's that's part of what a lot of college students are struggling with when they're they're coming to our program and they feel like this should be easily achieved but but there's so many barriers to getting there and just kind of like untangling those barriers for them is, is a core part of the work that we're doing so what are what are like and again I'm I'm asking you to speak to the you know perhaps I'm just kind of like old fashioned and ignorant and I'm like well this isn't a messy part of my life so I don't know what it looks like if it's messy but like clearly it's it's messy for a lot of people like what are the things so let's let's use the audience of the show as a proxy right like what are the things that people out there are dealing with that presumably some listener here here is like well, I'm so glad they're talking about this because I'm challenged with X Y Z like. What are those issues that people are having and how do you guys approach, you know, recalibrating people to, to make this less of a, of a challenging part of life? Well, I'll give you two challenges and, and, and I'm sure Marshall has more thoughts too. So one is to sort of to continue what Marshall was just saying about if, if and this is maybe more of an issue for a, for a generation certainly younger than I am. I don't know the average demographics of your, of your listeners and viewers. Um, but if you if the average kid now sees porn for the first time at age 11, by the time they are uh, sexually active at a perfectly appropriate time in their life, maybe the end of high school, maybe they're in college, maybe they're, you know, on some other some other path, but they're they're sexually active. They have seen so much porn or and, and maybe originally it was unintentional. Maybe it eventually becomes intentional that those images of porn can be so different than what the simple version of like, you know, fall in love and explore and have fun and build trust, um, that what they think they're supposed to be doing, what they think sex is supposed to look like can be so far off track because of course, in a desire, in the effort to, you know, sell porn, make money, titillate people, it sort of gets more and more extreme. Um, and sometimes what's really the most fun is, is as you said, quite, you know, can be really sweet and simple. 
I had another example. Oh, my other example is just those messages when people are bombarded with a like, don't do it, say no, it's bad, it's dirty, it's shameful. When they reach that point in their lives, again, let's say it's college because that's the population we spend most of our time with, we're suddenly like, it's okay. Like it's appropriate for you to date. It's appropriate for you to explore if you choose, if your partner consented. This is something you want. Like you're a grown up now, and this is something you can pursue if you want to. That so many young adults have so many mixed feelings and baggage that they're carrying, and I think many of them, you know, carry it into marriage. Some people are abstinent until they get married, and they sort of expect they're going to have this like lightning bolt. Like now it's great because we're married. And instead, it's like, oh my gosh, I haven't learned anything. We haven't built trust. We haven't explored and we're terrified. Uh, that can be a tough starting place. So so it seems like, it kind of sounds like what you're describing is a society that, you know, big surprise, everything seems to be polarized these days. It seems like sexuality is very, at least the parts that are driving the conversation in public discourse are very much at the extremes. You have either like the, the you know, hyper- ultra conservative extreme where it's like shameful and secretive and guarded. And I was brought to my parents by a stork because they never even did that. And then on the other extreme, you have like the pornography culture where it's just so like wanton and rampant and we're hypersexualized. And, and so it's almost like this, this buddy duddy notion of, you know, moderation in all things has just completely gone out the window. Um, and so so how do you, um, you know, do you have like a method or a sort of a process for, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, counseling people back to the middle, back to where this is just like a normal human thing and not one extreme or the other? I think most of it is, I, I, I don't know what the, quite the way word is, but I'll say changing people's expectations. The the thing I was holding back on was sort of lowering people's expectations, although I suppose that's, that could be a piece of it for some people. So if you take something like porn, I think that well, for instance, orgasms are a huge part of what, you know, people are interested to learn about, particularly for, you know, women to be able to have orgasms during penetration and just during partnered sex in general. And I think that's one of the ways in which porn just misleads and that it's either not addressing that at all or just sort of these wild, like fake orgasms where it's just assume that no matter what the guy is doing, like she's loving it. And I think part of it is creating expectations for both women in terms of like, OK, what are the steps to actually what does work? in terms of communication with your partner, but also just sort of physically, like how bodies work, what kind of stimulation do you need in order to be able to have an orgasm? And for a lot of guys in relationships with women, it's like, okay, what you're, the techniques you're learning, what the techniques you're learning in porn are just way off track. And also just gonna give you really unrealistic expectations about how long you're gonna be able to last or how big you should be, or like things that are just sort of standard, this is what people are, this is sort of the prerequisite for being a, a, a male porn star. Then in real life, you can have really great sex that looks completely different than what you're seeing in porn. And your partner is going to be a lot happier with the sex that you're having than if you're trying to imitate porn. So part of that is just sort of helping people unlearn all the mixed up messages they've gotten and being like, okay, here's what actually works. And here's how to put the, the pieces together in your, in your relationship and, and with the connections that you're having. So it sounds like porn is is a huge part of the problem, frankly. I mean, so, and yeah. as you were as you were describing it, I was thinking like it just came to my head like like learning learning how to have sex by watching porn is like learning how to hit a baseball by watching a lumberjack. <laughs> it's just all like I love it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um finesse the damn thing, please. 
<laughs> but uh, but no, it's it, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so so porn, you know. I don't know. I'm curious. What's you guys' take? Like, like, or or maybe a better question is like, you let's say you're doing a lot of post damage cleanup work. What's the actual preventative measure? I'm curious what position you guys take on like how do we? Because it is, it's really politicized. You know, uh, should porn be illegal? Be legal? Should it be so accessible? Should it be regulated? Should it be age regulated? How do they age control it? Like. All this stuff. I mean, is that a, a real stat, by the way? The average person now has their first exposure to porn at 11 years old. Yeah, that's the that's the best stat that I've seen. And obviously, it varies. And and often when you when they're a kid, it's by accident. They're channel surfing, or they're you know, it's they're poking around. You know, the the family iPad. What do you guys think is like a more systemic solution here? Do you do you have any thoughts there? I mean, I'm certainly a big fan of, you know, the kind of like real age verification, like, you know, all, all of that stuff. I would love to see more of that, not just about porn, about social media, about all of it. I think our our uh, lack of control, lots of uh, putting putting so much reliant on individual parents to sort of manage kids access to screens and, and all the many different kinds of dangers that are out there on screens. Um, but helping individuals navigate this in the real world is tough. It's it's tough to say, you know, we have a we have a teen daughter. It's tough to say, no, 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 just, just don't look. You know it's out there. Uh, but, you know, watching porn before you have sex is kind of like reading, you watch the movie without reading the book. Like this, the general story, there might be resemblances, but you, we all know if you've read a book first, there's so much more nuance. There are whole scenes that get dropped. There are just important stuff there. You know, you will enjoy it more. But we're not going to, you know, we're not anti-porn, uh, you know, flag waivers. We're not going to say no one should ever. I think porn can help you get turned on. It can put you in the mood. It can give you ideas. Like there are lots of situations for grownups when, you know, porn is fine. Porn may, may be a lot of fun, but it's tough when it's, um, when it's the first act of your sexual education. And I think one of the antidotes is just to provide better alternatives in terms of just more comprehensive sex education in general to be like, okay, here's porn is going to offer you one view of the world. Here's another view that emphasizes communication and consent and knowing your own body and getting to know your partner and all those things you're just never going to see on camera, but are super important yeah. to the kind of like sex that you were describing of, you know, being madly in love with somebody and really enjoying your time with them. Yeah, it seems like uh, I think it was it was Dorian talked at she threw in the word communication. It seems like that's that's a, a big and I'm, you know, again, I'm sort of extrapolating. I haven't done any work in this particular arena, but I do a lot of work in business and professional and personal growth and development where like basically people really struggle to, generally at communicating about sensitive, difficult, challenging, or emotionally charged things, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that that communication is a is a huge piece of it. So is that something you you work a lot with the the students about is like how to talk about this stuff? Absolutely, because there's such a feeling of like, this is awkward. Um, and again, the more we're all used to texting, it's very tough in the middle of a sexual interlude to be like, I'm going to text you. I'm feeling now I'm going to send over an emoji like you actually are there in the moment. Um, having to have those awkward conversations and having to communicate about about things that can feel awkward or can feel unfamiliar. Um, and I think people realize that that communication, you know, during sex, before sex, after sex, doesn't have to be these long formal conversations. I think people who are good at it have figured out these little tiny check-ins. So like, you know, is this good? Is this, you know, this is so hot. How does this feel? Like those little tiny phrases 
that help you find your way to the things that bring the two of you the most joy, the most pleasure. We talk a lot about orgasms, but fundamentally orgasms are not about orgasm as a goal, but just the sort of pleasure of the journey together. And I think, I mean, even for adults, I mean, maybe, you know, just some quick tips we could give your your listeners in terms of, you know, many, many adults are wondering how to have these same conversations. I mean, I think one of the, one of the, tools that a lot of people have found helpful is just find an excuse to bring up the conversation. Like, oh, I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about blank and the blank doesn't need to be exactly what, you know, the three of us are talking about today. It could be something more, you know, that you, you, the listener have in mind that you're kind of like thinking about that you want to bring up to your partner, but you're not sure how to bring it up and then see your partner's reaction. And if they're like, oh, like, tell me more, I'm curious. It's very different than like a median nose wrinkling, like, oh, don't go there. Um, because a lot of people do do want to have those conversations, but are just haven't found a way to bring them up, and their partners, once they're brought up, are eager to eager to have them. So, thank you. By the way, it sounds like you just you just directed our audience on how to use the conversation that we're having as a as a as a tool in their relationship. So glad we could provide that service for the audience. You can refer back to this conversation to have the conversation you want to have. Um, but so so let's talk about this female orgasm thing because. I mean, you guys, of all the subjects you could have written a book about, that within the whole realm of sexuality, that was the book you wrote. I assume you at least thought about it somewhat as a marketer and said, okay, well, of all the subjects here, this is one is likely to get traction, or you knew that you get a lot of questions about that or that there'd be a lot of interest. So assuming that, you know, that's a, that's a subject that that holds interest for a lot of people, like I haven't read the book. What What's... What's the core misconception or area of confusion would you say that needs to be cleaned up in in that department such that it's enough of an issue that it was worth writing a book about? If I were going to sum up one core misconception, um, I would say it's the it's the equating of penis with vagina and not realizing that penis equals clitoris. That the clitoris is as important as the penis. It grows from the same tissue when we're embryos and that um, having sex, having any kind of sexual interaction or interlude where you're not paying attention to the clitoris is exactly the same thing as having sex with a penis and just ignoring the penis. Being like, that's not an important part to be involved right now. And I think that just to build on that, I think part of how that plays out for a lot of couples who are having intercourse with each other and the, you know in this case let's say it's a man and a woman having intercourse with each other and the woman's not having orgasms and they're like why isn't this work i mean that was probably the most common question we get mm-hmm. from people of all ages at, and there's like help <laughs> and there there are any number of ways to make that work but often involves figuring out how to get the clitoris involved and we one of the things we did for the book was survey um 1569 people we had the laugh that like 16 was the final number in the survey that we got the results back. Um, and we asked people who were, we asked women in particular having orgasms during penetration being like, okay, like how does this, what works for you? Like, how are you making this work? And it all, almost all the answers, there were some lucky ones that just no matter what their partner was doing, the penetration alone, they were able to have an orgasm. But that was a fairly small percentage. But the much greater percentage just found some way to get clitoral stimulation at the same time, either uh, using their own fingers, their hand, their their partner's fingers, or using a vibrator. Using a vibrator was slightly less common, but still worked just as well. Um, some people also found that they could find some way of sort of rubbing against their partner 
getting clitoral stimulation during penetration that way, maybe against the, the base of their partner's penis or their partner's pubic bone. But finding some way of getting the clitoris involved just made it a lot easier to be able to have an orgasm. But a lot of people think like, if you know, it's not something, it's certainly not something that you see in porn or talked about in porn. It's not covered in high school sex ed, like how to make this yeah, work. Yeah. So, so, okay. So I actually, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm ignorant or I'm ignorantly not ignorant. <laughs> well, a better way to say it. Is this really like a newsflash for people that like the clitoris is like the, the densest cluster of nerve endings and that like, that's got to be a pretty big factor in the whole deal. Like that's news to people. It seems to be. I mean, I, we should pull your listeners there. I'm sure they're above average. I'm sure they know more than most oh, people. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> because they are unlocking their potential every day of the week. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a surprise. It's amazing how many women, it's amazing the size of the orgasm gap when you survey couples of all ages and you say, what percentage, again, this is sort of a heterosexual assumption here, which obviously not how all people have sex. But when you when you survey heterosexuals and you ask the men, you ask the women, like during your last sexual interlude, what percentage of the time did you have an orgasm? There's this giant difference. And so much of it is because um, the clitoris is not getting the attention it deserves. It's something like, it's in the 90s for, for men, 90, 90 something percent of men are having orgasms the last time they had sex. And it's like in the 50s to 60s for women, depending on the study. Um, and interestingly, so, go ahead, Marshall. And then well, I'll then, finish that thought. And I have additional interesting um, study that found that in order for a woman, there, there's a combination of three things you can do together as a heterosexual couple or a male female couple um, that result in orgasms for the woman 92% of the time. And the combination of three things is, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head, um, intercourse with clitoral stimulation, um, oral sex on her, cunnilingus, and her stimulating her own body during the, during sex in some way at some time during the interlude. If all those three things happen, 92% of the time there's an orgasm for the woman, which again, like, is that surprising? No, like any of those three things by themselves are likely to work. So all three of them, like, yeah, your odds are really high. But uh, apparently that is not happening in a lot of bedrooms. I also think there's a, a big gap, Jeff, between like what people know, like, okay, the clitoris is dense nerve endings and the most pleasurable part versus what they do. I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time. People are like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I listen to all your podcasts. And they're like, well, I can't quit my day job. Like, I'm too afraid or whatever. Like, I think there's a similar thing where people, people seen, you know, some sort of Cosmo, you know, clickbait or whatever and have it in their heads. But in terms of being actually at that point where it's like, okay, I'm going to make this orgasm happen, whether it be getting up the nerve to just reach down and touch myself during intercourse or just do something whatever it is to like knock it up to the next level, no pun intended, of like pleasure, then if people are afraid. And then part of it is just helping people just feel more comfortable in their own bodies, communicating with their partner, just being who they want to be without having to sort of perform for some like imaginary camera that of course, you know, isn't there. It's just you and your partner. It doesn't matter what you look like or, 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 or what matters is your pleasure. And that's that's a barrier for a lot of people to get there. Yeah, you made a really good point. Like, you know, presumably very little of what you see in pornography would actually result in a female orgasm in the real world. Yeah, and so if right. that's actually how people's, if that's people's primary sex education, it's it's no wonder women are, you know, struggling. And, and even aside from pornography, just look at you know any movie where a couple has sex. You know, right. this could be, could be R-rated movies. It's like. It's almost like the old fashioned, the bases, like first base, second base, third base, home run. It's like, you know, they, they kiss, they make out, they wind up in bed, they have intercourse. And the idea that there's anything that's going to give the woman an orgasm besides just penetration alone, 
um, that's not that that script doesn't doesn't include it. So so in terms of the unlocking of our potential, what are the price tags that we are paying individually and perhaps even as a society for this this misinformation or lack of information around sex and and ultimately perhaps more importantly the lack of you know sexual fulfillment or sex being what it could be which maybe people don't even know what they're missing but regardless what what are the prices being paid by individuals in society do you think i think the biggest price is just general uh i don't know if unhappiness is the word but sort of un confusion about not being fulfilled people feeling like this part of their lives should be better than it is and i think that's part of the the goal of certainly our work with college students but also i think it's sort of writing a book for an adult audience of all ages is that a lot of people have a place where they sort of are sexually and a place where they want to be and helping people just sort of figure out what that next step is for them and i think part of what's incredibly rewarding about our work is often that next step is is fairly achievable i mean there are a lot of there are a lot of things you can teach people to do you know uh, learn a foreign language that take years of study and practice and training and some languages are even harder to learn than others and you know there's all that sort of, but in terms of just just having a better sex life like i really can you know give you our book or come to an hour and a half program and people walk out of there and are like yeah like my life has changed in this one way for them you know whatever it is that they 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 need in terms of getting the next step and I think part of the price that everyone's paying is just like so few people are necessarily offer that opportunity or feel comfortable seeking out that opportunity in order in order to have a a better more more fulfilling life in that way. I, mean, I was just linking it to entrepreneurship in general. The idea that like a lot of people know what that one next thing is, but are afraid to take that step or do that that little it's totally achievable thing. Yeah, that's. I mean, it is actually. I, I never connected those dots, but it's actually a pretty apt metaphor. You said, like, I mean, as an entrepreneurial educator, you know, I have a pretty large platform with thousands of students. And the, in fact, in our kind of main program, the program that, you know, somebody invests in that's, you know, I mean, we have courses that are like 39 bucks and $7 and little kind of call them tripwires. But like when people make a serious commitment that, hey, I'm really going to do this, I want to try to develop this skill set. The first thing we actually have them go through is something called the implementation boot camp, where before they're even allowed into their curriculum, we have them spend two weeks just becoming world-class implementers because I, I had so many thousands of students that would just watch the videos, go through the lessons, take the quizzes, and to, to your point, Marshall, never do a damn thing different and then wonder why they didn't get the results. So we just said, hey, before we even let them go through the curriculum, we're going to teach them the difference between consuming and implementing material. And so you're right. It's actually totally the same. But but I, I actually, I, are there really, hmm, now you have me thinking. Because I feel like the incentive for implementation in this context is more immediate and obvious maybe than the incentive. Mm -hmm. Um, so do people really like learn and then not apply in this field? Well, yeah, I, I'm sure Dorian has great thoughts on this, but I think they're just nervous. You know, it was kind of like my, my mention of quitting your day job, but there is a certain leap. And I think this is particularly true in an intimate relationship where if people don't necessarily have role, you know, 
if your only role model is porn, which you talked about as a disaster, it's not something that you watch other people do. You know what I mean? Like it's in, in you don't you don't have role models in the same way you would for even entrepreneurship or any number of other things. Right. Um, we don't train, you know, high school sex ed doesn't train people how to talk about their desires and their feelings and their emotions in terms of what they want out of sexual pleasure. And I think in the end, people are left with a lot of less than ideal experiences, a lot of confusion about what it would take to get there and a lot of fear that of rejection and just having their having things get worse, I suppose. So how do you how do you how do you start people? Like, let's say somebody's listening, like you said, they're they're going, oh, they, they already taught me how to like crack the door open because I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my partner, hey, I, I heard this podcast on this Unlock Your Potential show and there were these uh, sexuality experts on there and they were talking about this and it made me think I want to talk about this. So so let, let's say we've already given them the initial overture, but how do you coach people then? Like, because I mean, I believe you that people are gripped with fear and shame and anxiety and whatever around this subject. So for that person who's probably right now hanging on our every word going, yes, give me the magic word so I can have this conversation. How do you actually coach them to do it? Well, one simple way, and there are, there are now apps that do the same thing, but to, 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 to do the old school um, way of sort of, especially for, for existing couples who are have been in a relationship for a while, but maybe they have fantasies or things they've been sort of intrigued by by a long time, but it can be scary to bring those things up um, or find the, what the new things are that might spice up your relationships, spice up your sex lives. Um, so you can sort of play a game called Yes, No, Maybe, where you each, um, you there are lists online, but you can also just brainstorm lists of like all the different sexual activities people might enjoy doing together from really tame to really kinky. And you subdivide them privately, separately, into your yes category, the things you that like you think could be really fun to try, your no category that you're not interested in, maybe like, you know, depends on the situation, depends on maybe have some details to negotiate. Um, and the apps that do this for you, well, actually, they'll they'll do the work of revealing to you both. You do it separately, but you're linked with a, you know, a code or whatever, your phone numbers. Um, they'll reveal to you the yes categories that you both share, maybe the maybe categories that you share. So if it's something that you're maybe a little embarrassed about, but it's something, a fantasy that you have, and your partner doesn't share that fantasy, they'll never know that you have it. You don't have to tell them. But if you're a little shy about it and you put it in as a yes, and your partner also puts it in as a yes, even if they're shy, suddenly you discovered, oh my gosh, this is this fun new thing we've never tried before, but we know we're both interested in it. So that can really be a way to um, to sort of kick things up to the next level. And instead of using an app, you can do it with paper, with pads of paper. Um, and you can just say, okay, that that one doesn't really appeal to me, but this one does. And you can it doesn't have to be all secret and private. You can just share your list. I like this one. I don't think I'd want to do this one. Is it and so your listeners may wonder, like, tell me, what are these apps? So, so one of them is called Kindu. Another is called Spicer. And there's also a website called Mojo Upgrade. We don't necessarily, we don't endorse or necessarily love any of those. Like none of them is perfect, but they're worth sort of exploring and seeing which one might be a good match for you. But I think you're, I think part of the question, the question you were asking, Jeff, in terms of just sort of like what, how do you, I mean, maybe we should, I mean, what comes to mind, and maybe this is too detailed or too particular of an example, but I think it's, it's a common situation where part of it is just like untangling the knot of how people get to where they are. Mm -hmm. what the next so let, so this is just an example and i hope this isn't sort of too narrow but i can give you an example of like sort of how we would think about this 
is let's say a long-term married couple, they have sex regularly, but in this case, the woman is always faking an orgasm and her partner thinks that she's having an orgasm. By, by the way, is that like a, is that a pretty common thing that women fake Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the, I, I want to be like, oh, those poor guys, but then again, like, how do you know? <laughs> right. And it, this is a tough situation to be on either end of it, right? Because for a lot of us guys, we're like, oh, like, so a lot of your guy listeners just even hearing this are like, oh, I don't want to be like, I hope, I hope I'm not the one in this situation. And even some guys even ask us, like, is there a way to be able to spot a fake for sure? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is, I mean, sometimes we have our audiences guess and they're like, you know, her, her leg shakes, her vaginal muscles tighten, her pupils dilate. And of course, all those may be signs of arousal, but not necessarily a guaranteed sign of an orgasm. But you can... The only way to know definitively for sure is to hook her up to a uh, PET scanner, which is a medical device and measures that's, brain. That's practical. Yeah, yeah practical. imagine. <laughs> Look how we sell them. No, we don't sell them. Yeah. <laughs> well, about $3 million. <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, what what to do? Um, so, and, and, and I'm curious, I mean, I can, I'm happy to keep talking, but do you want to jump in, Dorian, with how you would? No, no, no. no I, I want to hear the, I want to hear the, the example you were going to, you were going to go to. Yeah, so set it up. You should. You need to finish it off. Yeah, you. By the way, okay. Let me just say, do you guys know how hard I'm having to bite my lip this whole damn conversation with the? That's what she says, or, or oh, I I saw what you did there. Like you told her, like oh no, you go first, and then like oh no, that's too narrow, and like finish it just like yeah, yeah, finish it off. So anyway, sorry. I just now I don't have potential. Do you mean a career? You have potential as a sex educator. Like <laughs> audiences love that stuff, and it's so yeah. you just toss out them, and they're like, "Oh, you're brilliant! You talk right. just like you talk just like we do." Okay, but Marshall, you really do have to finish this off. Okay, so let's say the woman comes to a talk to us after whatever presentations. How do I fix this problem? Not having orgasms. My husband thinks I am. What do I do? So part of it is figuring out, like, okay, you're acknowledging that's a tricky position to be in, because just saying to your husband, "You know what?" I've been faking for 10 years is not going to land well. That's going to hit pretty hard in a way that may be difficult to sort of figure out what the next step is. Like he's going to feel horrible. You're going to like, so one way to work with that is like, okay, first figuring out with her, like what does work in terms of her being able to have orgasms. And in a lot of cases, you know, if she's not having orgasms on her own, just encouraging her to sort of figure out how to make that work with literally on her own, like, masturbating on her own, sort of figuring out like what, what does work in terms of her being able to have an orgasm. Often people in this situation are able to have orgasm on their own, just not with a partner and then, or not with her husband in this case. And often there's something that could be different about that situation. Usually that involves more clitoral stimulation. Like if they're just doing penetration for five minutes and then, or even for whatever, half an hour, but she's not getting the stimulation that, that she needs in order to you know, push her over the edge. So the, so one way to work with that is sort of figure out for her what does work. Like is oral sex what works? Is if, if you could get fingers in there at the same time, like sort of what would help? And then helping her to sort of figure out, are there moments, like is she occasionally? Fingers in there, fingers in there at the same time you're yes, talking about oral sex, not during penetration. Just in case right. anyone's like, oh, I guess <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I knew what he was talking about for what it's for. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. 
One thing we never want to do is get people farther off track than they already are. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> okay, continue. So if they, if there are moments where she thinks she might be closer, if he could do more of that, like let's just say, keep it simple, like more time on oral sex, which for a lot of women really does work in terms of just having a partner who's patient, who's willing to take the time to really build arousal where she could have an orgasm, then finding the language for her to be able to say that, like, oh, you know, I mean, do you want to give the example, Dorian, or should I? Might sound better. A couple what would everyone say? Um, she might be like, oh, that feels so good. Like that, that when, when you go down on me, that is amazing. And maybe if we could even do it a little longer, I would love to just see how that felt. So she can sort of yeah, find to praise what's working that, and, and encourage. Like, so that sounded so straightforward. It's like, again, I don't mean to be like, right. Oh, what's wrong with people? But like, that's, that's, I mean, you talked about being an English major. That's just like words put right. together as a sentence in the form of right. a, of a request. Like, right. And people joke that it's kind of like dog training where you like catch the behavior that you like and you encourage and you reward more of that and you encourage it. And, you know, and, and you maybe back off the faking a little bit. So you make possible like, well, I don't have an orgasm every single time. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I don't, but I'm still having a good time. And sort of at the same time that you're encouraging the behaviors and the, the, the things that you enjoy that actually might get you there, you can sort of gradually shift over to more more real orgasms and fewer fake ones. And sometimes it's not going to happen and making that okay to having space. So just like that was fun, but I didn't actually come. Hey there, sorry to interrupt the show, but I just have a quick favor to ask. So we recently broke into the top 100 podcasts in the entrepreneurship category. We've been hovering around 75 and we're really trying to push up into like the top 20 and grow the impact of the show. So if you enjoy what we do here and you're a supporter, the biggest thing you could do to help would be to leave us a positive review. Uh, whatever platform you're listening on, you should be able to leave a quick review. Let the world know what you like about the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let's get back to it. So uh, let me ask this, how, and I'm, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I made the decision coming into this conversation. I'm not gonna like, be overly personal mostly because I don't want to embarrass my wife, but I will say hypothetical scenario because it's not a problem I have, but like, can you count? Cause this is, you know, can you counsel? And I'm using the, I guess, archetypal monogamous heterosexual husband, wife or male, female model, whatever. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that gets me in political hot water these days, whatever. Um, it's my world. Anyhow, man, who has a a female counterpart that is like really it's really really closed off and and, and ha- struggles to talk about this stuff right and i think now admittedly i live in utah which is a kind of religiously conservative state you know it's kind of dominated by the mormon church i'm not lds so i you know it's not my reality but you know i certainly hear that like it's just not a thing that people maybe comes that naturally to talk about here can you counsel a man that wants to talk to his wife or his partner about how to please her more, but she's really guarded and kind of doesn't want to talk about it, but maybe he also senses that she's not as fulfilled as she could be, and he genuinely wants to do better. Before we answer that question, it makes me laugh because this is a question, when we are hiring people to be sex educators who work with us, this is exactly what we ask because people always just say, well, just communicate and just push people and say, communication isn't easy for all people in all situations. Okay, let's say that the girlfriend or the wife is doesn't want to talk about it, just says like, it's fine, it's okay, and won't give you anything. Right. Then what do you do? Okay, but um, <laughs> um, I still feel like this situation was what should the man do? So so then, then it's back to you, Marshall. 
Sure. I mean, feel free to, you know, jump these, you know, these tough situations, but I think a common one. I mean, I think that the, well, the couple things going on here. One, I would reckon a great resource is the book uh, Pure by Linda K. Klein. Um, she's not uh, addressing LDS uh, in particular, but sort of um, the uh, evangelical kids who gr- uh, grew up under an evangelical sort of thinking about sex and what, what she calls purity culture. Right. Um, so, and that describes about a third of all all adults have in the U.S. today have, have grown up with purity culture. Um, so that if that's if for your listeners, if this is the kind of thing they're thinking about, particularly if they're a woman sort of dealing with mixed messages in their head of here's what I learned as a child growing up about sex, yet I'm now I'm in a position of being an adult married woman or in a relationship, and just sort of how do I enjoy sex with my partner? Um, that's a really great sort of resource of of looking at it. But in terms of the the, but the situation of just having someone who's shy or quiet or may have a religious background or any number of reasons where they're just like, work with me here, like hell, I'm trying to be a better partner is is a common one. And I think part of it is, I think for, and I think you've, you've alluded to this of, for some people, communication is just so comfortable, like talking about sex or like even, you know, having me on a podcast or standing in front of an audience of 500 people and talking about sex, like, you know, for those of us who do it, it's just really easy. For people who don't do it at all, it can feel like a big leap to do anything. So for a lot of sex educators being like, just communicators say this, where people are, you know, they're describing like how to drive the car out of, you know, at 60 miles an hour as opposed to like just how to ease it into drive. So I think finding ways in which people can just communicate a little bit more. So part of what we tell our audience is if if your partner is doing something that you like, just make a little bit more noise. Like even the slightest bit of moaning or like, and, and like, if you feel comfortable, you can say right there, you know, two words that, that if your partner's on the right track, that can help, um, that can help, uh, but another, the, yeah, go ahead. Another tool that I think can be so simple and can, can really help people who are having, or the way that somebody doesn't want to talk or neither one of them wants to talk is to give choices, give two options, exactly the way the eye doctor does, where they give you two options, they're checking your eyes and they're like A or B, and you say B, and they're like, okay, B or C, where you say, you know, does, does it feel better if I, you know, touch you this way or this way? If I kiss you this way or this way, like more tongue, less tongue, more whatever, less whatever. And you give these options and you start to get, and they're like, okay, I guess I like A a little better. And if you keep giving options over time, you can sort of find your way to uh, either a really good pair of glasses or or maybe more pleasure than you were experiencing and sharing before. <laughs> I like the way you, you mixed, mixed the metaphor there. <laughs> oh, that was well well played. Um, okay, so gosh, I, I, wish, I wish so much. If I was like, hey, audience... Now that you realize we have this amazing resource here, these professional sex educators that are at the front lines, at the colleges where people are fornicating all about to and fro 24-7, like they know sex, man. They're where it's at, where it's happening. And we have the opportunity to ask them any question we want. I'd love to, would you guys be open if the if I said to the audience, send me your questions and I will send, I will, I will aggregate them and I will send Dorian and Marshall one email with a reasonable number of questions, like four or six max, maybe. Would you guys be open to that? Sure. In fact, okay. we do a whole program called uh, Sex in the Dark. So we, we when we're at college, we turn yeah. out the lights, hand out, hand out glow necklaces and bracelets. And then we have an app that people use that they just, just submit their anonymous questions. And we answer mm. sex questions for an hour. 
Okay. So you're, so you're open to that then. That's thank you. Sure. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, and, uh, okay. So then since we're, we're coming up on time, uh, we're going to run out of time. I actually, one question I really, really want to ask you guys, um, you do have children, right? I think a, a couple, you have two daughters. Yeah, exactly. I, I have two daughters. So, uh, I'm curious, um, what, how would you sort of sum up your, your, applied pr approach to parenting in in regards to this area like the right age to have the right discussion what is the right discussion what is the right amount of access to this kind of information like how how do you guys approach parenting from your vantage point if you're yeah. comfortable talking about obviously your parenting and your children yeah absolutely and that's an area we're doing more and more work um around the issue of sexuality and parenting. Um, and I think to me, the most helpful framework, and this is not an original concept, but it, I found it so useful as a parent, was to realize that 100 one-minute conversations with your kids is far more useful than one 100-minute conversation. But just those little moments, those little things that come up, you know, they ask a little question, you give them a little answer, or maybe they don't ask the question, but you see um, you see, see something, either what they're what they're doing or what they're how they're playing or something they're asking about in a book or a movie and you have you just you know you bring it up as a parent or i remember a time that we were out um and my child saw my daughter saw like abortion protesters for the first time and i could have just driven past but i saw her being like what's that because we were you know there was a clinic and being like oh this is my moment this is my moment to be like here's what's going on here and here's how i feel about it and with and, and there's lots of values that you can impart whatever your values are whatever your beliefs are about um, abortion, about dating, about masturbation, about all about body parts, about, you know, respecting other people, about consent. I remember when our daughter, when our older daughter was little, I remember her wanting to hold a friend's hand. They were, you know, maybe three-year-olds or four-year-olds. She wanted to hold his hand and he didn't want to hold her hand. And she was crying and she was like, I just want to hold his hand. And I thought, this is consent. Like, and I said, like, well, he gets to decide about his own body. I feel like those consent messages, there are endless opportunities of saying, you know, our kids have heard this as a refrain over and over and over. Like, you get to decide about your own body and other people get to decide about their own bodies. And it's true when you're two or three and you want to hold your friend's hand and he doesn't want to hold your hand. But it's just as true, you know, when you're a teenager, you're, I, I hope that they internalize that, that like, I get to decide, I get to say yes, I get to say no, and I have to respect what the other person says. Um, so I'm just always on the lookout for those little moments to impart my values or impart information and, you know, see if they have questions. And sometimes they'll ask the questions, but I, sometimes I feel like more often they don't ask the questions and it's on us to share our values in those little one minute conversations as they grow up. One thing that's really nice too, is there's just a lot of books out there that, you know, parents can review. I mean, there, there's such a range of books that you can find the book that reflects your values in terms of where you're at, in terms of what you want to teach, how old you want your kid to be when you're talking about these subjects. And, you know, thanks to Amazon reviews and and just the opportunity to be like, okay, what's out there? What matches up with what what I believe? Getting the books, reading them in advance, being like, okay, is this does it continue to feel like the right match? And then reading it to your kid, that book can carry a lot of the do a lot of the work for you in terms of helping parents feel like their kids have the information that they need, particularly as they head into to puberty and into into young adulthood of like okay have I have I checked the box as a parent knowing that schools can be all over the place in terms of what they teach and what they don't and making sure that that they have the information that they need. Well, books give you the words, like what you were yeah, saying, it's awkward to communicate. Like a book, a picture book gives you the words to tell to say to your kid. Yeah, but I think that you're we're touching on something that's really important, and that this is something my wife and I do feel really passionate about. Where I love what you said that 
having a hundred one minute conversations is so much better than one hundred minute conversation because the point here is it's to normalize it, but it's to normalize the all dimensions of it, not just the, you know, gratuitous physical dimensions of it. Like I think a lot of parents are nervous, like, well, if I normalize it, then I'm normalizing sex or I'm 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 giving I'm being permissive. Well, no, also normalize you know, bodily integrity, also normalize self-restraint, also normalize respect, also normalize healthy emotional communication, also like normalize all the things that are part of sexuality, not just the sex part, right? And 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 if you set, have one big sit down, 100 minute conversation to your point, that is not how you talk about normal things. That's how you talk when there's a problem. And if that's the only way you ever talk to your kids about sex, like it's some, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I don't know. I'm going to put you under a heat lamp and we're going to talk for two hours. Like you're in a police station. Like then you've made sex into that for the rest of their life. Right. Talk uh, about awkward. I mean, that sounds so awkward as a parent or as a kid. It just sounds yeah. horrible. Well, and, and uh, even with the books, I know that like, for example, my parents, they gave me a book. I don't remember how old I was. And I thought, and, and I, I, if anything, that probably did more harm than good because it was like, oh, this is a, this is a thing that my parents need to give me a book about. <laughs> like, don't just, I, the books can give you the words, but I don't think, I'm not sure a, a book should actually give you the voice. Hmm. Like, talk to your kids about this stuff. And that's, that's, I know we're, we're about out of time here. We are out of time. So I'll just say, I mean, I'm curious if you guys agree with this. My perspective is that, even if, if sex is an uncomfortable thing for you to talk about, let's say with your partner, that's fine. You guys can work through this, but you have a responsibility to work through that before you're raising kids. Because if you're weird around sex and you're scared and shameful around sex, unless you process through that and deal with it, you'll pass it on to your kids. And that's not fair because they didn't have a choice. They can't choose to be to stay weird about sex like you are. Mm -hmm. You're choosing it for them. I'm curious if you guys agree with that or think that's too harsh. I think that's so true. And if you ask, you know, college students, if you ask 18, 19 year olds, they will they will tell you each one. My parents were really comfortable with sex. They really communicated their values or my parents were so uptight and so uncomfortable. They could never talk to me about it. They're very clear and they know exactly how their parents felt and what they were. They successful? Were they unsuccessful? How did they do? And being successful doesn't mean being perfect. It just means being willing to be like, yeah, this is tricky. This is tricky, but I, you know, I heard something on the news today. I saw something in the show that we were watching together that I was really thinking about. I didn't like the way this kid responded to this other kid, bringing it up and, and talking about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate so much your values. I mean, the values of respect and consent and, you know, mutual respect and mutual pleasure and like all of those sort of pulling those pieces together. Like there's so many, many people think of it, when they think about talking about sex with their kids, they're imagining a sort of on off switch of like, Either, you know, <laughs> like cover their eyes or like they're going to be dumped with all this information they don't necessarily need or want or shouldn't have. Well, reality, just those basic building blocks of like, here are my values around what I think, what I believe involves that healthy sexuality entails. I think it's such a real opportunity as a parent, just in the same way parents teach all sorts of values or table manners or any number of other things that we, you know, impart on our children, hoping that they'll be be better humans as they they go into adulthood here here um well listen guys i wish we weren't out of time this is a this is fertile 
a fertile subject we could <laughs> see there it is okay. the jokes write themselves uh, no there'd be there's a lot more to say but I, I appreciate so much you guys uh having spent this time and coming on the show can you please share with the audience because i know that we have only minimally scratched the surface probably of the audience's interest in this subject um where can they go to learn more about you guys and also learn more from you guys go on marshall sure uh so I Love Orgasms book uh, is the website for the newest edition of our book. And if you put in the coupon code UNLOCK20, that'll be for 20% off the book. Uh, uh, and of course, we welcome... It doesn't unlock 20 female orgasms. That's not how it does. <laughs> We're working on that by next year. All right, all right. We haven't discussed this at all, but we've, we've uh, entrepreneur-wise, we've been having a really fun time with our I Love Female Orgasm t-shirts. Um, so we have our, our, a line of merchandise that's become very popular on college campuses of people of all ages. So that's at ilovefemaleorgasm.com. They can they can pick up t-shirts. Was it orgasm singular or plural? So the the book is I Love Orgasms book. Okay. Um, and the uh, the t-shirts are ilovefemaleorgasm.com. We we got both. We do both versions. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um. Well, uh, I would expect to uh, to move some shirts and some books when, when this episode comes out. Okay, team. And then how about you guys? Uh, are those websites the best way to find you personally? Those websites I mean, not, are great. Not, not like physically, personally, like come to your house. I just mean like to follow you online. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll find, you'll, find, you'll find us through those websites pretty, pretty well. So I think those work well. Okay, awesome. Well, Dorian, Marshall, thanks for being guests on Unlock Your Potential. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for delving into this this new and wonderful, wondrous aspect of potential. That's right. Hopefully we've unlocked some. To all you viewers and listeners out there, you know how I end every time. I'm going to tell you, you're the best part of this show. You're why I do what I do. You're why I do it every day. And I'm so glad we got to spend this time together. Can't wait to see you on the next one. Take care, everybody. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in, check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.